Good morning. It's Wednesday, October 14th. I'm Duarte Geraldino. And I'm Shamita Basu. This is Apple News Today. Each morning, hear about some of the most fascinating stories in the news and how the world's best journalists are covering them. Nearly 12 hours. That's how long Amy Coney Barrett sat in the hot seat on the first day of questioning as a Supreme Court nominee. And that's where we start. Ruth Bader Ginsburg's legacy was ever-present during the hearings. Some Democrats wore lapel pins that showed the late justice's face. Barrett said she was forever grateful for Ginsburg's trailblazing path as a woman on the court. Judge Barrett is a devout Catholic. We talked a little bit about her faith earlier this week. And she's a mother to seven children. Early on in the questioning, she said her personal beliefs would not affect the way she rules as a justice. I mean, I have a life brimming with people who've made different choices, and I've never tried in my personal life to impose my choices on them. And the same is true professionally. I mean, I apply the law. She was asked how she would rule on specific cases from the Affordable Care Act. I'm not here on a mission to destroy the Affordable Care Act. I'm just here to apply the law and adhere to the rule of law. To gun control. Do you own a gun? Uh, We do own a gun. Okay. Uh, All right. Uh, Do you think you could fairly decide a case even though you own a gun? Yes. To abortion rights. I can't pre-commit or say, yes, I'm going in with some agenda because I'm not. She added on abortion that Roe v. Wade is not a super precedent. And that refers to a decision that's considered so fundamental it's no longer questioned or up for debate, like segregation, for example. But she said that doesn't mean that Roe should be overruled. Analysis from across the media landscape, including recaps in The Washington Post and Vox, describe Barrett's performance as careful and composed. But These recaps also point out she didn't say much about how she'd actually rule on any of the culture-defining issues of our day. Instead, in the tradition of past nominees, she said she couldn't comment on legal cases that might come to her as a Supreme Court justice. Judges can't just wake up one day and say, I have an agenda, I like guns, I hate guns, I like abortion, I hate abortion, and walk in like a a royal queen and impose, you know, their will on the world. You have to wait for... There were a few things that she declined to comment on. She wouldn't say how she would rule on whether a president can delay an election. She refused to commit to recusing herself in a scenario where the election might end up in the Supreme Court, as President Trump has recently and repeatedly suggested. And when asked whether a president should commit to a peaceful transfer of power, she also wouldn't answer that. To the extent that this is a political controversy right now, as a judge, I want to stay out of it and I don't want to express a view on... For their part, Democrats repeatedly tried to paint Judge Barrett as a right-wing activist who would undo the Affordable Care Act, reverse Roe v. Wade, and undermine civil rights. They said her adherence to an originalist interpretation of the law could put into question the rights of millions of people in the U.S. who don't feel protected by the original text. But Republicans defended her qualifications as an outstanding legal scholar and thinker worthy of the highest bench. Yeah, the Washington Post says overall on day two of these hearings, things are going very well for Republicans. Judge Barrett stuck to her message that she's not looking to dismantle the ACA, that she's not going to single-handedly change the interpretation of law in America. And the Democratic senators who questioned her were not able to draw out any answers from her that might fuel her critics. This week's hearings are going to be the one time you're going to hear from Judge Barrett before she joins the bench if she's confirmed for a lifetime appointment. Hearings resume again today. Same format. 
Yeah, and it's probably going to be another long day. The committee is scheduled to vote on her nomination this Thursday before it goes to the full Senate floor in the final days before the election. While Amy Coney Barrett was testifying yesterday, the eight-justice Supreme Court ruled the Trump administration can stop counting for the 2020 census. That decision has some people who were already worried about traditionally undercounted groups in the U.S. even more concerned about who's being left out of the 2020 count. There's this legal deadline for the Census Bureau to hand in their final census report, December 31st. And that's why the Justice Department argued that it needed to stop counting now so it could have enough time to crunch the numbers. Earlier this month, a lower court rejected that argument and said the count has to continue through the end of this month. But now the Supreme Court ruling, of course, overrules that. And by the way, there have been a few times in the past where the Census Bureau wasn't ready to meet its final deadline and Congress approved extending it. Yeah, but this sudden change adds to an already shaky situation. A Reuters analysis of past census data found the pandemic could make some of the hardest to count regions in the 2010 census even harder to survey this year. The article looks at what might happen to some communities around the country that are undercounted. Just look at Rio Arriba in New Mexico. It's a rural county. A lot of residents are living below the poverty line. Many are undocumented immigrants, and they are one of the hardest to count populations in the census, partly because many of them are worried about the repercussions if they fill out a census form. Now, that county is in desperate need of federal dollars, which are given out based on census counts. The lower the count, the less money allocated for things like housing and child care programs, which are critical needs in Rio Arriba. County officials there say that they're also facing an opioid epidemic and they could use federal funding for things like detox centers. So far, only about 32 percent of households in the county have voluntarily submitted their census, compared to 67 percent of households nationwide. Reuters also looks at central Mississippi. It's the most poverty-stricken state in the country. Mm. Just about half of all households there voluntarily submitted their census forms. And according to Reuters, a past undercount in the state resulted in a child care program for low-income mothers receiving less funding. One woman who runs a daycare center told Reuters, Her school is only at half capacity. In theory, the school has the space to enroll double the number of kids, but it can't, she says, because there just isn't the funding to support it. Justice Sonia Sotomayor was the only justice who recorded her dissent in the Supreme Court's decision to allow the census to end its count. And in her official dissent, she wrote, quote, The harms caused by rushing this year's census count are irreparable and respondents will suffer their lasting impact for at least the next 10 years. Los Angeles is home to the largest number of people of Armenian descent in the U.S., which is why for weeks there have been protests on the streets of L.A. calling for an end to escalating violence between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Vox explains exactly what's happening in this region of the world. The two countries have been in a decades-long standoff over a disputed territory called Nagorno-Karabakh. It's roughly the size of Rhode Island. 
And after the fall of the Soviet Union, it was technically declared part of Azerbaijan. But Armenia and the ethnic Armenians who live in Nagorno-Karabakh never accepted that designation. In the 90s, there was a war of the territory. 30,000 people died before the international community brokered a ceasefire. Despite that ceasefire, there have been occasional flare-ups over the territory. But in the past few weeks, things have turned even more deadly. Hundreds of people on both sides of this conflict have been killed, and not just military forces, but civilians too. According to the BBC, this conflict has already displaced 70,000 people. Last weekend, Russia brokered a truce, but it fell apart within hours. And here's what's really dangerous about this situation escalating. Just take a look at a map. You'll see Iran is to the south, Turkey is to the west, you've got Russia to the north. Each of these governments has a stake in this conflict. Turkey is backing Azerbaijan. They've reportedly sent Syrian fighters into the conflict, and they're providing drones to strike civilians. Public radio station KCRW has been covering the protests in L.A., where pro-Armenian demonstrators shut down the streets. At the end of the day, if we stop the fighting, it'll result in a genocide. If they stop the fighting, it'll result in peace. I think it's a very one-sided story here. KCRW also spoke with the Azerbaijani Consul General based in Los Angeles, who said the Azerbaijani perspective is being misrepresented in American politics and media. They parrot word by word the Armenian official propaganda. Again, black and white. Armenians are angels, Azerbaijanis are demons. This kind of narrative, uh, which is absolutely disgusting. According to Vox, some experts are worried that Moscow could also decide to get involved militarily. But so far, Russia's been playing the role of moderator, along with France and the United States. The worry is the fight over this one disputed territory could have a ripple effect throughout the world and cost many more lives. If you're an American and you win a Nobel Prize, because of the time difference, the Nobel Committee usually calls you in the middle of the night to let you know. But on Monday, when the committee tried to get a hold of American economists Paul Milgram and Bob Wilson, they had a bit of trouble reaching them. As The Guardian explains, they did eventually get a hold of Wilson, but they still couldn't reach Milgram. And lucky for them, these two economists aren't just colleagues, they're also neighbors. So in the dead of night, Wilson walked over to Paul Milgram's house with his wife, knocked on the door, and let him know the news. That he not only won the most prestigious prize in economics, but along with it, a million dollars. The whole exchange was caught on Milgram's security camera. Paul? It's, it's Bob Wilson. You've won the Nobel Prize. And so they're trying to reach you, but they cannot. They don't seem to have a number for you. We gave them your cell phone number. Yeah, I have. Wow. Will you answer your phone? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you need to let them be able to call you. The Stanford academics won the Nobel Prize for Economics for their work on auction theory. And Shamita, if I ever win a million dollars, you come bang on my door and wake me up, okay? <laughs> I'll throw pebbles at your window. Forte, wake up. You won. You can find all these stories and more in the Apple News app. We'll talk with you again tomorrow. <laughs>